So, Isaiah 12, Isaiah 49, continue on our second week of our series on emotions and the character of God. Changed up a few things that I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, Isaiah 40 for next week, I want you to memorize verses 1 and 2, okay? So, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. If someone doesn't have it memorized, we are not going to have a sermon. Which I'm going to hedge my bets, right? And try to figure out, uh, you know, should I even plan for a sermon? Uh, you're going to stand up and say it. Yeah, I'm, oh gosh, you think I'm going to do like, you know, Scout's Honor kind of business? Oh, heck no. I don't trust y'all. I'm going to hear it from somebody in this audience, Isaiah 40, 1 through 2. Otherwise, we are not having a sermon. We'll just spend the time memorizing or doing some other activity. In uh, the message, it doesn't matter what version you memorized it in, whatever's the easiest version for you to memorize it in, uh, is fine. That's absolutely fine. Although I would say the more literal versions are the ones that are easier to remember. Uh, the more you uh, add on stuff, the harder it is going to be to remember. So Isaiah 41 to 2, we might as well just read it. I'll read it at the end as a, a way of um, kind of concluding what we're, what we're doing. Okay? So Isaiah 41 through 2, that'll be the goal each week is to have those Memorized so that, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're actually trying to kind of take to heart some of these things that, uh, that we're talking about. All right. So in this series, as has been posted on Facebook and I think uh, will be posted on our website here pretty soon, we're doing a couple things. One, we're trying to figure out and talk about emotions from a biblical perspective. We're trying to compare our emotions to the character of God to figure out their proper use and proper understanding. Uh, goal is to memorize Isaiah, but then also we want to use humor as a way to kind of talk about some of these subjects. Now, as I posted, some of you saw, some of you didn't. I cannot find my Christian satire book. Uh, not only can I not find it on my shelf, I can't even remember the title of it. So in quick haste, I bought two books, both of which were terrible. One was an academic book. Uh, one was Babylon Bee. Both were just so awful. And I was, I was thinking about this topic of humor and emotions I was realizing that, you know, so much of Christian humor is Christian satire because there's so much to be made fun of in Christianity and Christian culture. And I think we're pretty good at that. But um, I was thinking, you know, what better book uh, to reference on Christian satire than the Screwtap Letters? Because C.S. Lewis does in one of his, he says, easiest books to write but most painful. He satires uh, actually Christians and uh, devils, as he calls them, in this wonderful book called The Screwtape Letter. So we're going to actually read through this as well. And it's 31 roughly chapters, and we're going to have about 15, I think, sermons. So you could do two at a time. And I was going to read one this morning, but I don't really want to read this uh, in front of you. Because then it's like you're reading more of the a book than we're reading the Bible. Uh, so I'll just let you choose to, to go that route if you want to. There's a lot really comical in this. But it's very dark humor, as is obvious with the subject matter. Uh, how many of you have read screw tape letters all the way through? Okay, great. So read it again. It's really, really good. Uh, and I will uh, admit to this, uh, but back when I was reading through the scripture, Monday through Friday, according with the Lord's Prayer, when it came to the end about, you know, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven, lead us you know, not into temptation, I kind of didn't know what to read, so I just read through the screw tape letters for like years. And so I have a lot of it kind of internally in my mind. And I think it's given me not only a sense of humor about things that are scary, but also a real biblical understanding of what spiritual warfare and those things look like, which he talks about in his preface. We go too far on either end. Either we believe that you know, spirits don't exist or they're like, 
behind everything, and he talks about how his book is really sort of uh, mediating those two perspectives. So I don't know if the screw tape letters thing is going to fit in really naturally, and I'm not going to try to force it uh, like I do sometimes with source material. So you know, if you just want to read that, I think it'll teach us a little bit about emotions, as you'll see referenced uh, today. Okay. So we talked about sadness last time um, a little bit. I mean, mostly we talked about excitement, but obviously the, the opposite of, of excitement, or at least tends to be sadness, this sort of dullness, boredom. Uh, life is sort of the same old, same old each and every time. And I want to, to remind you of an idea, particularly because the majority of you here, this is going to apply to more than our college students. And that is that as life goes on, Many of these emotions that came natural to us when we were younger seem to dull, all right? They seem to just not, you know, come as natural. And some of that, as Justin mentioned last time, is very much natural in our brains. We lose a lot of those, you know, things like serotonin and stuff that produces some of those up and down kind of roller coaster of emotions. But I don't think this is a bad thing because when you think about emotions or really kind of anything as you age, there's sort of a maturing process that happens here. Number one, we're more involved now in controlling our emotions than we were when we were younger. Emotions just sort of attacked us and we more or less responded to them, reacted to them, but had very little control in choosing those, uh, you know, those emotions. Or better yet, uh, or if you don't believe that we sort of choose our emotions all the time, we had a, let's say, a shorter period of time where we had any ability to react to them in a positive way or in a way that we could control. But as we get older, we have the ability to do that. So we talked about last week in terms of, of choosing to be excited uh, and thinking about those things differently. We mature in our understanding of emotions, understanding that they're a lot more complex and uh, nuanced than when we were younger and they just sort of came upon us, those kinds of things. So this is actually good news. I mean, this is really a good thing for us. Uh, although I think our natural place as we get older can be indifference to emotions. Emotions are something that we are actively engaged in and can choose and have a lot more control over as God's given us control over them. All right? So today we're gonna to be talking about kind of the opposite of emotion in some ways of sadness. We're gonna be talking about fear. All right, And fear is one of those terrible, terrible emotions uh, that, kind of like excitement, is almost just like sharp pangs, sharp, sharp things that happen that make us just, our whole body is sort of, um, you know, kind of involved in the experience. For those of you who really have or can harken back to a time that you've really felt really anxious about something or truly feared something, one of the tricks and challenges with our society is probably most of us don't see fear as a, uh, an emotion that we experience on a daily basis, particularly when it comes to like true and deep fear of the, the situations around us. Maybe some sort of like existential fear, anxiety, angst, but the idea of actual sort of fear, uh, many of us uh, may not feel that we experience too much. One of the quotes that I kind of uh, caught early on, which I've sort of questioned now over the years, is Emerson, who says, do the thing you fear and the death of fear is certain. Uh, that's sort of like that shock therapy, fear therapy, expose someone to what they're scared of, and then all of a sudden they'll uh, not fear it anymore. That sounds like a really good idea, but in practice, uh, have you ever watched Fear Factor? 
Um, it kind of doesn't work <laughs> for most people. Exposing them to their fears, uh, you know, sound, again, it's a great quote, but I'm not so sure it's really helpful uh, in, uh, in teaching us much about this fear thing. Uh, this book that some of you are super into, you weirdos, uh, inner healing group of you, trading peace for pain, pain for peace, trading pain for peace, trading peace for pain. Which one do you trade? Pain for peace. Yeah, okay, good. Hopefully not the other way around. Guys, as you know, my mind does this thing. I don't know if it's really called dyslexia, but it kind of seems like it. So, um, not reading backwards, but I do this almost all the time. So anyway, you get it. Good for you. Uh, in this book, he attempts to try to kind of talk about two kinds of feelings and emotions. Fact-based emotions, all right, and feeling, or, and belief-based emotions. And that's kind of an okay idea, I guess. It's somewhat based in counseling. One of my problems with it is he talks about fear as being a belief-based emotion and not a fact-based emotion. The idea of fact-based emotion basically means, you know, we're dealing with something that's factual in our environment, so it's a necessary response. Whereas a belief emotion or feeling is something that really isn't kind of completely true. It's just something we've told ourselves. And he's using the example of how often the scripture talks about not fearing things, do not fear, or do not be afraid, as a reason we should never experience fear. I think that's a really short-sighted idea, not to mention the fact that the scripture talks just as much about being afraid and you should fear God than it does talking about not being afraid. So I think there's something a little bit more complex to fear in the scripture. It's both good and bad. Uh, and um, if there's one really strong statement from Scripture that we can kind of remember, it's the idea of we got to fear, we have to fear God, and not really fear anything else. And that's if you think about it, such a bold and offensive claim that we ought to fear God but fear nothing else. Uh, certainly, if we were to live by that as Jesus did, uh, our lives would be much more difficult, I think, in some ways than they are today. And yet, you see throughout Scripture this idea of fearing, um, you know, God and fearing God only and not worrying about all the other fears that kind of come natural to us. That's the period of time that we're in in Isaiah right now, all right? Uh, is Isaiah is kind of responding to this uh, warning that the entire nation is about to go into exile. If you think about some of the most famous um, passages about, uh, you know, fear, uh, so to speak, in the scripture. One of the big ones is when the Israelites are going into the promised land, and in Joshua he says, be strong and courageous, over and over, be strong and courageous. Remember that you're going into the promised land. Uh, of course, they weren't strong and courageous before that, and now, you know, be strong and courageous. And so God is going to now do the reverse of what happened in Joshua, take them out of the promised land, and they're still supposed to be strong and courageous and not fear, etc., etc. So that sets us up for Isaiah 12. Let's read through this very, very short passage here. And then I'll share some thoughts with you, and I think uh, we'll be, uh, be on our way. All right, Isaiah 12. I don't even have it pulled up. So Isaiah 12 kind of, uh, and again, I would recommend, it's kind of long, it's in two parts. Recommend that you uh, listen through the Bible Project um, video on Isaiah. It's really helpful. Part one, part two. And in particular, and some of you are going to do this in your small group next week. So if you're already going to do it, you know, you'll do it in your small group. But the first half of part one is pretty helpful. Second half, not as much. And then, uh, what? What's wrong with you? What are you looking at me? I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. If you don't have eight minutes for a video, watch the first half of the video. Okay? I'm a practical person. I'm always scrolling through videos. Can never do the whole thing. 
So, first half of video one is better than the second half of, of part one, okay? So there you go. It'll help you in the long run. So, verse 12, here we go. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. All right, let me back up a little bit. Where are we at in Isaiah? No, no, not that. <laughs> Isaiah 12, verse 1. Right? But where are we at? What's this part of Isaiah about? Can you remember last week? All right, judgment. Okay, it's about judging a nation that's fat and sassy. Nothing seems like it's about to go wrong. And the whole first 39 chapters of Isaiah are God telling Israel, hey, things are about to get really bad, worse than they've ever been for you guys. Okay? You thought Egypt was bad. This is going to be even worse. All right? So I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. That doesn't seem like too much judgment, does it? Well, Isaiah 12 comes smack dab in the middle of two sections, first part of Isaiah, second part of Isaiah, where he's reminding them in between these two large judgments, still there's hope amidst this awful thing that's going to happen to you. Okay? And so this part kind of separates uh, these two larger parts. So let me just make a, sh a few statements uh, just kind of about this section. First, I have to bring up a memory that I've brought up before. I'm just going to remind you of it. I have this kind of uh, daydream sometimes, you know, particularly whenever uh, I'm, I don't know, when do I have this daydream? I don't know. I don't know if there's a particular time to it. Maybe when I see a large man that I'm scared of, uh, I'll just go with that. That uh, if anybody ever tried to fight me, I would be able to like turn around and they'd be like, oh, this guy, you know, he just looks like a skinny guy, you know, he's power, he's not very good at fighting. And with one punch, completely knocked him out. Now, this is a daydream that I have a lot, okay? And it's embarrassing, I know. I think a lot of it comes from this sort of like, I grew up, you know, pretty skinny. I mean, thankfully in the last few months, you know, I've developed this bodybuilding kind of body that I have now, but I grew up pretty skinny, okay? And I was always kind of, I don't know, a little bit picked on, a little bit bullied. I also hung out with a crowd that bullied other people. So in retrospect, I realized I was kind of like on the lower rung of a cool crowd, but still on a much higher rung than most other people around me. But you know, my perspective, right? And uh, the only time I ever got in a fight, I got whooped. I mean, whooped hard. It was like something out of a movie. I got to choose between three Asian guys because at the time, which is a much more difficult story, um, I was a part of this, I don't know, very conservative, let's just use that word, group of people who didn't like uh, people around campus who didn't look like us. Um, I wore country uh, cowboy boots and listened to country music for the one year of my life that I could just delete. I wish I could just delete it from my life. Well, anyway, at the end of the day, uh, somehow three Asian guys, I don't really even understand, who represented the other time, other side, gave me the opportunity to choose between them. And I mean, literally out of a movie. And I, I promise you I'm not making this up, okay? I did in-school suspension for like a week after this. It was really awful. Um, big guy, okay? Big, big guy. Big Asian guy, all right? Medium-sized Asian guy, really ripped. Teeny, tiny Asian guy. Well, I mean, <laughs> who are you going to pick? I mean, when it came down to it, I picked the short guy. And that guy whooped me up pretty bad, okay? So who knows what the other two guys put down. Anyway, I got this daydream. And the daydream is me just knocking people out. It comes from Snatch, right? You guys seen that movie? 
I highly don't recommend it. <laughs> it's a very good movie, but it's very bad. And Brad Pitt is this, this scrawny little guy that with one punch just knocks out these much bigger guys. I know that's where that, that has kind of come from. And then most recently, The Art of Self-Defense, okay? You saw that, which is super dark, but really, really good. Also highly don't recommend it. Um, but I have this, this idea, this idea that in this moment, somehow I would be able to do this. Now in reality, if I was ever in a fight situation, I mean, I might be confident enough now and stupid enough and years have passed that I would actually try to fight. But I'm pretty sure I would try to find some way out of it. Like, you know, I'm too old for this, I'm gonna call the police, you know, you can't do this, or just completely run, I have no idea. The point is, what I envision myself doing in defense is going to be very different than in actuality what I'm going to do, I think. I mean, if I can knock someone out one punch without having done any classes in jiu-jitsu or boxing or anything, that would be amazing. It truly would be a miracle. Um, so, but I don't think that's gonna happen. So, I wanna, uh, Mention this, this sort of one point from Isaiah 12, and that's that fear forces us to pick our defense, okay? So fear puts us in a situation where we have to choose a defense. We're not just daydreaming about it anymore. We have to choose some defense. Now this could go into the fight, flight thing, whatever else, but what fear does is it puts us in such an uncomfortable position, we have to choose a defense to it. We all do it. We don't just go through fear indifferently. None of us just naturally sit through fear like, oh, you know, I mean, even people as laid back as Austin experiences fear and has to, you know, have some sort of, uh, you know, mechanism for it, right? Defense, right, Austin? Maybe? Yeah, possibly? I think, maybe. Maybe? Yeah, you don't know, because you've never experienced fear, so that's good. Uh, I was watching Furious 7 last night, because I have sling now, um, and there's a moment when that hacker girl is like, you know, I know this group, you know, there's two kinds of group. They stick together from fear or loyalty, and you guys don't have an ounce of fear in you. That's so true, right? So true of Austin? No? Okay. Good deal. So, fear forces us to pick our defense. In other words, fear forces us to choose who and what we will trust, what we're going to fall back on. We can think all day long in situations of fear that our defense is going to be God, but if we haven't practiced it, what chance do we have of actually having God as a defense? Well, uh, uh, Isaiah here in chapter 12 is saying, God is my defense and my salvation. He is my defense. And throughout scripture, people who de dealt with very difficult times, fearful times, God was their defense. Now that sounds like such a cheesy idea, and it is when people say it to themselves, but haven't actually practiced it. In the same way that it's cheesy for me to say, yeah, I'm gonna knock someone out with one punch, uh, when I've never actually practiced any kind of martial arts. But we do this all the time with ourselves. We think, well, God's going to be my defense, you know, in this time, or he is my defense, or worse, when we're trying to comfort someone, comfort, and we tell them, well, hey, God's your defense, as if just telling them that in the moment is going to somehow really, you know, comfort them. And that can be kind of tricky, you know, we'll talk about that in, at least uh, in a moment. But there's two things that happen when we're afraid, okay? At least to me, at least two things. There's lots of things. But number one, things don't, things aren't really funny anymore, right? You know, it's like it, humor just sort of goes away when things get really, we're get, we get really fearful. There's like no humor left. You, it's not the right time to joke with someone usually uh, when they're experiencing tremendous anxiety or fear, unless they're really twisted. Uh, and, and even then, if you think about it, there's something that, you know, humor allows us to kind of not take ourselves really seriously. One of the things that's most wonderful about Screwtape Letters is he believes that the, one of the most fundamental thing, 
things about devils, what he calls devils or demons, is they have no humor. Their humor, at least no mocking humor. They cannot see themselves in a humorous light because everything about them and their persona is serious. They've got to be serious. They can never mock themselves. They can mock others. They can use humor in situations that are irony, you know, negative humor, things like that, but they can't uh, possibly mock themselves. Humor in a situation in fear is to be able to look at ourselves and be like, you know what? I feel this way and this is really terrible, but at the same time, it's, gosh, I might be overblowing this. Like what really is the outcome of this horrible situation that I fear, you know, so greatly, right? Uh, What's his name up in Seattle? No, CCF. Brady, yeah, he was here a couple weeks ago. Uh, Talked about infatuation that way, right? That, you know, just because you feel like you're in love with someone or your feelings are that way, you ought ought to probably laugh it off a little bit to sort of, you know, make it have less power. Uh, So, two things uh, when we're afraid. Nothing seems funny, and I'm going to get back to this in a moment. And comfort can't be faked. You can't fake being comfortable when you're, when you're, uh, you're fearful about something. When someone tries to comfort you, tries to make you feel better, that you're not, you're, you can't fake it. It's not going to just you know, happen. Someone can't just comfort you when you're in the midst of fear. Uh, you either are comforted or you're not. But trying to fake it, your body will sort of tell you that uh, or it won't. Okay? Come back to that idea in uh, just a moment. So... Fear and humor. Two things happen when we're afraid. Nothing seems funny, and comfort can't be faked. In this verse in Isaiah 12, what Isaiah is ultimately saying is that the people of God are going to be comforted by God. Okay? And this is going to be important when we read over in Isaiah 49. God is going to come himself and comfort them in their fear. That's a huge promise. Because if we could have some surefire way to be comforted when we're uh, you know, afraid when we're, you know, ex- uh, have extreme anxiety and it worked every time, that would be pretty dope. Most of us would go to that thing every time. Now, some of us, we have all kinds of ways of dealing with fear and anxiety, medications, uh, you know, distractions, things like that, that work with varying degrees. But God is telling uh, the people of, of Israel through Isaiah that he is coming and will be their comforter, which is pretty great. So Isaiah 49 this is the meat of uh, what I want to talk about. So Isaiah 49, it's kind of long. You guys want to popcorn read it? Why not? Let's do it. So turn there and let's just read kind of sections. Read it out loud, loud and proud. Oh, I guess we won't pick up on the mic, will we? Okay, never mind. You can't do it. Sorry for those of you who really, really, really wanted to do that. All right, Isaiah 49. So here we go. A little bit longer. uh, And where are we at now in the section of, uh, of Isaiah? Well, you remember the rebellion, but you don't remember the second part, do you? The nice part. The nice part. That's exactly right. That's what it is, in essence. It's, all right, you rebelled. uh, You rebelled. I'm going to judge you. Now, here's all the good stuff coming your way. Okay, once all this has happened. This sort of future prediction uh, of uh, of their... Uh, in exile currently, even though this is, goes well beyond Isaiah's lifetime, Isaiah's talking as if they're already in exile, which is really weird. We talked about how most of the books of prophecy really don't predict certain periods of time. But Isaiah not only predicts it, he actually pretends to enter into it and speak from it, which is really, really uh, different and new uh, when it comes to the prophecies. So, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth 
like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So, real quick. Through all of this, in the midst of exile, okay, God is speaking to Isaiah to tell Isaiah, I've made you, you're special to me, and you are my servant, who I will display all of my splendor. Now, they're in the midst of exile. They've been harshly criticized and condemned, paid double, as we'll see from Isaiah 40. And God is speaking this to them, right? There's an aspect of this that if you were in the midst of it, you'd be like, oh, that's, those are really cute and sweet and nice words. But yeah, right. So, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Now notice that. How can you have both of those together? How can the response be, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God? You see in Isaiah this uh, kind of torn um, aspect here. It's, you see it the same in the Psalms, this kind of honesty of, on the one hand, I feel like my life is nothing and worthless, and on the other, God, I know this is ultimately in your hands. And that's why this whole idea of not fearing God, and we should all be completely courageous in fear and not be honest about how we're feeling, doesn't really make sense. It's a little bit more complex than that. The question is sort of like, which one wins out the day? The defense that I'm helpless and can't do anything, or the long-term understanding that God is in control and he's done much, much better in much worse situations. Okay, um, so, and now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now guys, it's so hard, I think, sometimes to put ourselves in these uh, passages, particularly if we haven't studied them. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying to Israel, and I, I often misread this early on, thinking that this passage was directed to Isaiah telling him that he would reach out to all the nations, but that actually doesn't make any sense because he didn't. What God is saying here is, I am now revealing to you that through this exile and throughout all the things that are happening, you are still going to be my servant to the ends of the world. Even though you are now exiled into these nations, you will be the ones to show them the light that I have sent. This has been my plan all along, and your suffering and all the things that have gone on with that were all a part of it. But this was hard to hear, guys. It was very hard to hear. And that's why you're going to see the response that comes back. To see that God is doing what he's doing and has been doing what he's doing through all of these painful and frightening experiences would have been very, very hard for them to understand and listen. So now you're telling me that not only are you going to save us, you're going to save the rest of the world through us. And here we are in exile. Uh, treated as, you know, basically slaves to these larger nations. Uh, hard to hear. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, 
Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. All right, come on. This is just ridiculous. Kings are going to bow down to us. We're the least of all nations. You have basically sold us into slavery to Babylon and Assyria, and kings are going to bow down to us. Guys, if this was me and my heart was pretty hard towards God, this would pretty much seal the deal for me. God, you are an idiot. You, I'm, this, no, this is not going to work anymore. You are a dreamer. I think about some of the situations I've had with some of you, talking to you, certainly in my own life, where, you know, you're in the midst of a time of your life where things are just tough, you're afraid for the future, you see no hope, and three months later, all of a sudden, the entire situation has changed. And the real question is, did you take advantage of that, knowing that, hey, I either didn't have faith in God back three months ago when everything seemed bad, or you know what, next time this happens, I'm going to actually trust that God's got something good, or do you just let the experience roll off your shoulders and then do it all again the next time? And your only defense is not salvation in God, but your defense is whatever's going to get me through the moment of fear at the time, whether that's voicing all the things I feel, which has helped nobody ever, alone just doing that or really learning how to trust in God and the promises that he makes this is what the Lord says in the time of my favor I will answer you in the day of salvation I will help you I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land to reassign its desolate inheritance to say to the captives come out and to those in the darkness be free okay so at least now he recognizes Here's the current situation. I am going to reverse this. All that good talk. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, which they did a lot of under captivity, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside the spring of water. I will turn all mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Comforts his people, not like in a sweet sea nice, but actually giving comfort to them. Now here's Zion's response, which you can expect. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born, says God? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. So I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back, and those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. Though you were ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people. And those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say, in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone, but these, where have they come from? This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. Kings will be your foster fathers. Their queens, your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you their faces to the ground, they will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? 
But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retreat from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. Ooh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So, obviously, if, from a historical context, this is not going to happen historically until the coming of Christ. That's why Isaiah speaks so much in terms of prophecy about Jesus and about the idea of nations you know, bowing to him and things like that, which we'll get into a little bit later. But let me just give you the, the kind of main point that I want to give in all of this. And that's just something so simple and so cliche uh, and yet so true to life. Doing big things takes courage. Okay? Doing big things takes courage. You know, why is courage so rare and celebrated in our society? It's because it's the opposite of almost every bodily instinct we have. To be courage in the midst of fear, we, we run, we fight. But to really be courage, to somehow have comfort and to wade through the fear that we have uh, to do the right thing anyway. I mean, the closest example of we, of, that we get of this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who is fearing his situation. Obviously, he wouldn't tell God to take the cup from me unless he was afraid. And yet, he didn't have the ability to hear from God, at least in that moment, which would lead to the whole, the Lord has forsaken me kind of thing. But he had courage, and he did it only, you know, his statement would not take it away from me at all costs, but take it away from me only if it's your will. But big things take courage. It's so opposite of our will to survive. Why is everyone like Hufflepuff so much? <laughs> right? I mean, Slytherin is such a better school, right? Yeah. But they love it. Whatever. Schoolhouse. I don't care. Hufflepuff is so great because of courage, right? I mean, that's the one characteristic, as if other people don't have courage. Everyone likes Hufflepuff. Oh, I got it wrong? What's Hufflepuff? Oh, Gryffindor. Yeah, but I made the point right. Gryffindor is the one that uh, Harry Potter went through, right? Okay, so then my point is right. I just got it wrong in terms of no one likes Hufflepuff. Those are like the idiots, right? The kind, they're like the kind idiots, right? Stop, stop, this is my favorite. That's my favorite. Well, anyway, uh, it's rude, but I also said that I was Slytherin. So, you know, Hufflepuff is like the opposite of Slytherin. Oh, that's true. No, no, that's not knowledgeable. That's Ravenclaw. We don't have to be knowledgeable. Okay, whatever. Um, anyway, my point still stands, even though it's incredibly distracting of a point. And that is that uh, people love Gryffindor the best because of their courage, right? Um, so why is it that the, you know, courage is so rare? It's kind of the opposite. Uh, God in this passage is letting them see the big picture, but that is one of the hardest things for us to understand in the midst of fear, is the big picture. Because fear causes us to see the moment that we're in and pretty much only focus on it. One of the really interesting things about screw tape letters in the first chapter is the devil, uh, Wormwood, the uncle, one of the devils is... Um, you know, communicating to Slubgob. How can I get those names right? And I can't get Hufflepuff and Jingle Bangle and all those other names right. Uh, and, um, and he's communicating to them. Basically, he's in the midst of this guy's kind of thinking about his faith. And he says, you know what? The best way to get him to think about his, uh, to get him distracted from faith is not to make him think rationally or argue with other people. It's to remind him that, hey, he's hungry and it's time for lunch. 
And so get him out of this situation where he's thinking, and then we'll assault him with newspapers and different people around him. And he just talks about how, you know, moments, living from moment to moment, is the way to keep people from thinking about the big picture stuff and keep people from thinking about universal issues like faith and the importance of all these things. Teaching them that reality is ultimately about what's going on at any moment, not the reality of the larger world around us. And that's what fear does. It ultimately puts us in a situation, fear, anxiety, where we're so focused on the moment that we have no ability to see the big picture of what's going on. Meaning we can't remember what God has done in the past, we can't remember what he's promised us into the future, and this is why it's so hard for us to really have courage uh, in the moment. And yet, that's what courage ultimately is. It's about being able to see the bigger picture, what God's done, what he's going to do, and to be able to believe that he'll win out, uh, even when nothing in the situation looks like uh, that's going to happen. Okay? It starts with the belief, certainly, as, that all Christians have, that God will prevail. But it progresses with trust. As we learn to trust God from one moment to the next, courage becomes something more likely to happen in the midst of fear, but we have to learn how to trust God and to do it continually. And how that happens, it, it's about benchmarks, moments when we remember God doing something that we highlight. Too many of us think the belief that God is good is going to make us courageous in the moment. It's not. It's the trust that he's done this before, he'll do it again. That's what's going to make us courageous in the moment. And that's really important, Okay. So each fair moment, we have the ability to be strengthened by it or not. Uh, it reminds me of that Proverbs 31 passage, which some people kind of think offensively of. I, don't, I think it's a pretty good passage about women. But she looks to the future and laughs, right? She can look to the future and laugh. I love that verse, basically. She's not worried. There is no fear in her. That Proverbs 31 woman uh, kind of thing. So... This whole nations thing is not ultimately about Isaiah. It's about that the servant Jesus uh, is, uh, is coming and things are actually getting better, even in the moment where it looks like everything is getting worse. And, you know, guys, uh, you know, this sermon is supposed to be kind of in part about what our church is about and who we are and kind of didn't end up being that until this last point. Uh, but as a church, guys, we're trying to prep people to do big things. And that's really what we're about. We're not, as a church, trying to do a big thing, Okay. That's not what we're about. We're about putting courage into people individually to do big things. And by big things, you know, I, I, it's not about flashy things. Some of the biggest things are the things that put the most fear in us. Like what Gabe was talking about and talking to people about faith in our current society. It's just fearful. It's tough. It's difficult. But that as, as, as a church, what we're trying to do. The idea of you guys possibly leading churches in the future, that any one of us, like a, me, could lead a church. That's a big thing that only God can do. Tra training and teaching people uh, our best how to do uh, big things. But it, big things take courage. They take walking into a fearful situation and trusting that God's going to ultimately do what he's promised to do, even when the situation, uh, we have no sign of that. We like to do things when we have open doors, but not very many of us want to climb through, uh, you know, a cat door or a dog door, right? And yet so many of the times that's sort of what God's calling us to do, is to sort of climb through a little cat door or a dog door, which I've done plenty of times, but I'm just saying. We don't, we don't tend to say, well, oh, look, God's opened that cat flap for me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, that's often what, what he's doing. <laughs> uh, look at that. I didn't even write that one down. Good analogies always just kind of come out of nowhere, you know? 
even just to live holy life, guys, in the, in the generation we are, to live holy lives is a big thing. It takes a lot of courage in our day and age to just be faithful to God when there's a variety of ways around us not to be. So big things really do uh, uh, take courage, and we've got to learn how to deal with the kind of fear uh, that, uh, that so easily comes our way. That's pretty much all I got. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys are going to have questions, because usually it's the college students that ask questions. So, um, I mean, if you have any, great. I'll open it up, although I don't think we have the mic today, do we? So, man, who knows? Questions about, uh, yeah, big things take courage. Can you say the thing you said about fear again? It was like about... Like the whole sermon? No. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, I just think that fear is like a, uh, an acute pain that you have. So immediately when you have an acute pain, even if it's like a splinter, you like for kind of forget all the rest of the pain in your body. You know, you ever hear that joke like, oh, you know, your hand's hurting? Let me punch you in the face. Uh, that, that's the idea is that your pain is so acute that you're only focusing on your finger. Of course, punching someone in the face is going to, yeah, it's not going to really work. It's just going to refocus the pain. But I think that's what fear does, is fear is like acute pain. It, uh, it makes us focus on only that thing going on, and we don't have the ability to focus on anything else. That's why courage is so hard, because it's anti-bodily. Um, you know, I mean, fear is huge in terms of our body. The amount of, you know, what our brain puts out when we're in fear mode uh, is really, really, really tough uh, to deal with and to handle. So, yeah, that's all, that's all I was saying. All I meant. Thank you. Sure. I appreciated that expansion. Thanks. Any others? Yeah, great. Uh, so in this sermon and last sermon, you talked about how it's important to look to the past and to the future. Mm-hmm. And um, most of the time when people say, like, oh, yeah, I'm just kind of having my head in the past or the future and not really in the present moment, they talk about that as a bad thing. Right. So it seems like depending on how you're doing it, it could be good or bad. It is. And I'm wondering, like, what delineates that. And I made a concession for it last time talking about how we tend to talk about wanting to live in the present. But our generation lives too much in the present. And, um, and I think what that means is that, you know, it's, it's like what uh, Lewis talks about in this first chapter, is that we go from moment to moment kind of without connecting what we're doing, bigger picture. And some of that has to do with just that we're so focused on things from one second to the next. I remember reading about this about 10 years ago that it showed for all the benefits of uh, you know, millennials and things like that and some of the things they can do, they have a really tough time focusing on one idea for a long period of time. Um, because to do that, you've got to put together multiple you know, separate and connected, uh, disconnected pieces. And that's just really hard. It's easier to stay in one focus moment and then just move from one to the next. And that's made it really hard for things like sermons or like lectures or whatever else. And I don't think that's just a learning style. I think it's kind of a, a way of living. Um, that helps us move from, you know, in some ways, distraction to distraction. Now, sometimes that's good because we can be more in the moment with people, more conversing. So I think the real balance in it is that, uh, you know, if we fail, and this is my big, the thing I can think most about, and I'm picking on people who have anxiety here, but I have anxiety myself, it's not the same kind, is how many times I've sat with someone, you know, two or three times in the same year that's having a situational anxiety, uh, it's not an attack, but... You know, I, I, I just can't, they're uh, verbalizing, I can't see how this is going to turn out okay. And I'm thinking, four, four months ago, th- this other thing turned out not just okay, but good. Like, you've got to remember that. And it's hard to remember that when I'm in a current situation. Yeah, but that's already fixed. 
And it's already done with. Yeah, right. But did you take trust out of that or did you simply just get through it and now you're in this pattern of living from one anxious moment to the next, which is really what children do because it comes on them without their ability to choose. And again, I'm not making any statement. I take depression medication. I probably ought to take anxiety medication, but again, my anxiety is a little bit different. Uh, but uh, that's kind of part of it. Does that kind of make sense? I mean, that's a really tough question because we're ultimately asking a question of balance, how much present, how much future, um, but that's tough. But I do think if there's one thing that's helpful about reading Isaiah or just reading about the story of Israel, one of their biggest faults is they fail to remember what God has done in the past and don't understand and take to heart these things that he's saying is going to happen in the future. This whole suffering servant, which is what we've read today, was one of the biggest themes in Isaiah that they just completely missed. And that's why they, many of them didn't understand who Jesus was. Because he's ultimately describing who Jesus is going to be here. And none of them were ready to see Jesus because they didn't or, you know, inculcate those words. They didn't, um, that's not the right word. Yeah, they didn't internalize those world words about him being the suffering servant. So maybe one more if you guys have. We're good to go. Okay, uh, we're going to take communion and then we'll come back and we're going to do something a little bit different, acoustic Singing, yeah. So that's going to be exciting. Isn't it acoustic? He told me it was acoustic. Yeah. Okay, why are you looking at me like... It's always acoustic when you sing. It's always... Acapella. I thought it was acapella, but that's with no instruments. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Okay? You guys just make fun of me for everything I say. I'm going to say a prayer for our uh, communion. And uh, I, do, I would just say a thought. That's the, the thought is that, you know, so much of the scripture, it's easy for us to look back at and see Jesus in these passages, but it wasn't easy for them to see him in terms of the future. And just think about the privilege that we have, the blessing that we have as as modern day Christians to understand that so many of these passages talk about Jesus and for them in the situation that they were in to not understand that, to not have the hope of a Messiah, to not, you know, commonly as a people recognize that this really is going to turn out uh, into Jesus would, be, would have been pretty difficult. So we are tremendously blessed in that. God, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for this uh, moment that we get to think about him and think about um, just the life that you lived among us, that you would come and do uh, the thing that is most out of your nature, to be separated, and the pain, the fear that that involves, that you know that, and you did it for our sake. We love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.